Welcome to the No Risk Sports Performance Podcast, where we discuss all things sports performance, from training to nutrition and recovery to individual and team victories on and off the field. I'm your host, Judah Boulay, owner of No Risk Sports Performance in Lincoln, Rhode Island. I'm ready to roll, so let's do this. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of No Risk Sports Performance Podcast. Today, my guest is Andrew Gregory. Andrew is a tennis coach slash strength and conditioning coach at DePaul University out in Illinois. Correct? Indiana. Indiana. I'm sorry. I knew it was really nice. Um, uh, He's the assistant coach there, but his main role there outside of coaching tennis is making the men's and women's team stronger off the court so that they perform better on the court. Um, He played college at Oliver Nazarene University, and he also has a CSCS. So, um, Andrew, you could probably do a much better job than I did introducing yourself and all your credentials and background. So why don't we have you do that before we get into the nitty gritty of some of the questions I have about sports performance and tennis? Sure. So I've been uh, coaching tennis for, I think, 12 years now. I've um, Well, probably if you, I guess a few more if you count coaching I did when I was in college and high school, but uh, 12 years as a job. My first year, I was a teaching pro at a club. So I did that for about a year. Um, and then this is my 11th year coaching in co- at the college level. And then I think about maybe three years ago, um, I got my CSCS certification. And so I started doing a little more with that. Um, a few years before that, I, I got a certification uh, through the ITPA. Um, it's like their certified tennis performance specialist. So it's kind of like the, the tennis version of the CSCS, that type of thing. Um, so I got that a few years before I did the CSCS. So I've I kind of started down that path maybe six years ago. I was, always had a passion for um, the fitness side of, of sports and performance. Um, and so I started getting into more of like the studying and, and the science behind it um, a few years ago and then decided to get some of the certifications so I could do um, do a little bit more with it if I wanted to, you know, do more at the college level, strength and conditioning wise. A lot of schools are requiring that certification now. Um, so yeah, I, I did that. I played, like I said, I played, uh, four years of college tennis, three years of college basketball, and then, um, worked for a year at a club and I've been at DePaul for 11 years now. Um, so I do both the men and the women there. We coach both teams and both teams are in the, the same season. So, um, very few off days when we're, when we're in season, um, and D3 is a little bit different, um, rules wise. So I can't technically, um, I guess at once I got the strength certification, I can work with our players in the off season. Before I had the certification, I wasn't allowed to do anything with them in the off season if you're strictly a coach. But if you're a strength coach, as long as it's open to every um, athlete on campus, then I can um, I could have my tennis players in there during a, a strength session, um, which we weren't able to do really much of that this past year because we were under so many. Um, COVID protocols that the, the weight room was tough to get into, numbers were limited. Um, so now I guess technically I can do some stuff in the offseason with them as long as it's open to everyone um, and the university. So I guess basketball players could be in there. We could have lacrosse in there. Um, so as long as it's open, I can I can work with uh, the team. So uh, we, we typically will give them like a, a strength and conditioning plan um, to do during the offseason. And then they have some options of, of doing like what we have uh, PES performance um, enhancement series. So we do some of those like where it's like speed, agility, plyos, that type of thing. Some of the strength coaches will rotate and run one of those a couple times a week. So, so the players have that option in the off season. And then they also have a, a program that I put together for them 
Um, so yeah, I've been doing that for, for a while now. I enjoy it. Um, I love doing, I think both, both sides of it, the, the tennis skill part, the matches, the, um, the tactics. And then I also like doing like the off court strength and conditioning stuff where we're, um, trying to find a way to transfer some of that to the court. And that's cool. Um, so, you know, this is, you've only been doing the strength and conditioning portion for, you said three or four years. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so who was doing that for the team? previous to that Did, was there somebody or was it just something that was like overlooked and, ne- and neglected so really when I started um we didn't do it was 11 years ago we didn't do anything strength and conditioning wise um the head coach has been there now I think uh 20 some years um and we didn't do anything strength and conditioning wise and I was I was a year I was two years out of college so I was still kind of learning and I'd I'd, I'd had experience because I played basketball and we had to do strength and conditioning stuff in basketball in college and same with tennis. We did a little bit of that. So I had some type idea, but we weren't doing anything as a program. And then I think my second year, I talked to our head coach and I just said, hey, we got to get we've got to get the teams doing something in the weight room. We, we just we were, we were having a ton of injuries every year and we were having. In, in D3, they're not they're not required to do anything in the offseason. So they would come in the start of our spring season out of shape then we'd start killing them with practices and matches. They'd start getting hurt. So I was just like, hey, we've got to get something going. And so I started doing, I think it was two days a week in season, we would do, um, I'd take them into the weight room, we'd do strength and conditioning. And it wasn't like the most specific stuff they needed or the probably the right thing they needed, but it was something and it was helping because obviously I didn't know um, the right way to program, the right way to, to periodize a schedule um, I just had an idea of what, of kind of what we needed. And so we were doing some stuff. And so that actually helped prevent some injuries. We started getting a little bit stronger. And then about three years ago, um, I got my CSCS. And so then I was more on like a more official capacity. So I technically was doing all the strength and conditioning stuff, um, the speed agility stuff, but I didn't really have my credentials until maybe three years ago. And then um, and then I was able to do it at a, on a more serious level and, and that help out some of the other teams as well. What's the biggest difference in the teams that you found from not doing anything to doing something before you got your CSCS? And then now with the amount of experience and training that you've had um, in terms of like what's like the like the biggest differences you've seen between those three segments? So I would say the. Obviously, before we were not doing anything, the biggest thing is we were we were getting hurt a lot because guys would come in or the girls would come in unprepared and we had a lot of injuries. And so um, when we transitioned to the weight room, um, we may not have been doing the exactly right thing we needed to do, but we were doing something. And so we started to build some general strength, um, which actually helped, I think, our durability a lot. I think we we stopped having some of those nagging injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, we started to perform a little bit better later in the season. Um, I would say then I was probably doing maybe the volume in season was probably too high and we were, we were pushing them maybe a little too hard. So I think from the mental toughness side, I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I think physically in season, when you're, when your tennis court is such a hard surface, when you're practicing five days a week, you're competing two, three days a week. I think it's a, it's a lot of impact. And so, I think the volume was probably a little too high. It was, I think the good probably outweighed the bad because we were right. preventing some of those injuries we were getting beforehand because we just basically had had no base, no strength base, no 
um, endurance base. And so, and then I would say now it, the volume is much lower, but I'd say we're a lot more specific. So I think we're, we're getting more of kind of the improvements in like power and speed, um, than maybe we were before I, I had my credentials and I really understood the energy systems and, um, and how to manipulate some, some programming. So I think endurance wise, I think we were, we were good, um, before because we were doing so much. I mean, we'd do some circuit training. We would do, um, we would do a lot of interval stuff on the track. So we were doing a lot. The volume was a bit too high, but, um, endurance wise, we were good. And I'd say now we're, we're focused more on, we'll do more endurance based stuff at the beginning of the season, but I would say now we're focused more on maintaining power output throughout the season making sure um, we're still moving explosively late in the season. So trying to stay fresh while keeping like the intensity of our training high with the volume low so that we can, that we can kind of peak at the end of the year and still be maybe serving as hard as we were at the start of the season or, or uh, getting to as many drop shots as we were getting to. So just making sure we're, we're moving as well. So I would say now we're, we're doing a much better job of improving and maintaining the areas that, really show up on the court because i would say obviously endurance is a huge part of tennis but the points are so quick they're anywhere from three to 20 seconds 20 seconds is very high for a point too so it's really short burst so you have to be able to maintain that that power output throughout the match and so i think we're doing a better job of that now than we were beforehand cool um so that brings me to another question now because um, back in the day when I followed tennis, um, and that was, um, in the early nineties. So I'm dating myself. Um, mm -hmm. the, there was a difference between the men and the women's game, um, then, um, and I, as the game evolved, um, yeah, is there still a big difference between like the men's game and the women's game, um, in terms of like the time of each point and the style of game, or has that like the difference, um, the, the gap lessons. Yeah, I would say you're, you're typically going, going to get um, some longer points in, in women's tennis. I wouldn't say it's like an extreme difference. Like there's a ton, but I would say they, they're not really getting as many free points with the serve, especially at our level. Like we don't have girls that are hitting tons of aces or, or getting, drawing a bunch of errors with their serve. Um, it's more, you're actually hurting, more with your return because girls serve especially second serve sometimes they don't do as much with it and they kind of have it seems like a lot of them come in with the mentality that you know i just got to point the, i just got to start the point and then i can get in and do my thing and so they don't really think of using the serve aggressively and attacking with it whereas seems like our men have more of a the mentality of i, I want to almost like a pitcher like i'm trying to think of what i want to do with the serve I, i've got to attack maybe kick it out to this guy's backhand and then I'll get the ball I want where I can hit into the open court. So that, that, that type of thing. So I think some of that is, and I wouldn't say all guys are like that, but I'd say the majority of, of guys think of trying to be a little bit more offensive with their serve than the women's, uh, than the women players. And I would say the points are typically a little bit longer, especially in um, if you watch men's doubles and women's doubles, like our women play typically one up one back the whole time. So we'll have, one girl back at the baseline, one girl up at the net. Um, whereas our men are, are, we're trying to get them the majority of the time, not all of the guys do it based on their playing styles, but we're trying to get them serving and volleying and, and coming forward quite a bit. 
So obviously in that, if you're doing that, the points are going to be quicker. You're going to, you're going to end it much right, earlier. Right, right. Whereas the women we're going to have, sometimes you're going to have, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 ball rallies. And then someone finally picks off one. So doubles, I think doubles, you see the biggest difference mm -hmm. singles. I would say the type of ball that, that the serve and then the type of ball they're hitting guys hit typically a little bit heavier. So they're hitting a little bit more spin. That's kind of pushing you back and, and have a little bit more racket speed. Whereas women typically hit flatter so they kind of block through the ball more and, and hit a little bit lower with with less spin so their ball is not quite as heavy but it's a different different type of ball that you're seeing most of the time so i think guys generally just have a little bit more racket speed and so i think they're they're able to heavy the ball up a little bit more now does that does the differences um between the men's and women's game change how you train each team or do you take the same approach to training both of them because you still want to develop that power in the woman like that you are developing in the men? Right. I, I mean, pretty much training wise, we have the same, the same goals for the most part. I mean, cause it's such a, such a rotational base borders. Um, obviously you have to deal with the shoulder, um, the upper back when you're serving and you need to have proper mobility to get into some of those positions serving or, or just, just when you're on the run hitting open stance or whatever, I think. So generally we treat them uh, training wise, pretty much the same. Um, I would say on court, you'll see more differences uh, in like coaching than off the court. I would say the off court training, even like the speed stuff is, is very, very similar. Uh, we don't change a whole lot. Okay, cool. Um, no, that's good. I, I'm just, I'm just, I was just curious about that just because um, of the starting points for um, the different athletes. Um, right. So you, you mentioned something there and you said it's a rotational base sport. Um, give me one second, a fire truck just pulled up and oh, sorry. <laughs> idling right next to the microphone. Um, so you said rotational base sport. All right, so there's, so do you train rotation or do you train anti-rotation when you bring them to the weight room? So we do, um, <clears throat> we do a little bit of both. I would say we're probably doing more rotation work um, maybe early in the season or preseason. And then in season, we're probably doing a little bit more anti-rotation because the volume that, I mean, they're hitting so much right. that they're getting a lot of rotation work every time they step on the court for practice or for matches. So we don't want to just overload that. And we want to make sure they're, they're staying, you know, durable, they're staying stable in those positions. And so I would say in season, we do more, um, anti-rotation. Um, we'll, we'll throw in like some rotation work, like maybe as a, as a warm up at the start of practice or something, we'll do like very, very low volume. We'll do a couple like max effort throws, um, each side. And then that's pretty much it. We're not doing a ton of that. And then occasionally we might do some core rotational stuff in the weight room as like an accessory at the end of a, a session, but we're, yeah, we're not doing a ton of rotation in season. It's more anti-rotation. I think when they're not playing, that's as much, that's when they need some more of that to, to maintain and, and to improve that. But uh, so that's kind of the approach that I take with that. So when they're not playing, train the rotation so that the body stays familiar with it. When they right. are playing, tackle the anti-rotation because they're getting so much rotation and right. the actual practices themselves in the sport. Right. Cool. Exactly. Now, what's your favorite um, rotational training exercise? And what's your favorite anti-rotational training exercise? So I would say, I guess my favorite would be, it kind of rotates. I, I like, I like some of the, the med ball throws. Um, 
away from the body where you're kind of like scoop throwing it. Um, cause that obviously gives you a, a little bit more of a, a translation to tennis. It's, uh, where if you're keeping it tighter, it's more, I think, geared towards, um, movement. Um, and then I would say it rotates between some throws and I love, uh, payoff variations. So we'll do some, some payoff variations with some rotation in there. So we'll do maybe like a press and then you release and go into, a, a, like an explosive rotation, um, so we'll do, yeah, we'll do some, so like you, you, um, you would press out. Okay. And then, so I bring it to my chest, press yeah. out, and then I let it go all the way back. And then I explode with a, with a rotation. Oh, cool. So I let the, I let the cable pull my arms back and then, and then I'll explode. Yeah. So I do like a press and then a, a rotation. Oh, that's cool. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll do some of those. I, so it kind of varies, I think, between the throws, I think throws can give you may i don't know i guess maybe it's hard to tell throws might be able to give you the best maybe output you're looking for um Mm because you can just completely release and and launch it especially if you're using like a lighter ball i don't have them throw heavier balls a whole lot because it's not really going to help the speed if we're looking for the amount of speed they can produce on their swings heavier ball is going to typically be a slower throw so i try to keep them under like six pounds or under when we do some of those high powered throws um, so I'd say that either that or some type of like payoff variation with rotation, some type of cable rotation. Okay. Um, and then anti-rotation, I like, I love the, the payoff. I think there's so many right. variations you can do. I think um, the different stances, you can go half kneeling, you can go full kneeling, you can go standing, narrow, wide. So I think, yeah, I think there's so many, so, so much benefit to that. So yeah, yeah. I think that's probably my favorite for anti-rotation. I'm a big fan of the pay- payoff. Um, of that of those and all the variable yeah. variations um that you have from it james one of the uh guys from what from the, our first session yeah. mm-hmm. um he was showing me a one-legged mini band payoff variation and i'm oh, like yeah. it's it was like the hardest thing i think i've <laughs> like i'm good at pay, payoffs yeah and it, it was it was legit like very <laughs> difficult to try to balance it on one foot while doing the payoff. Never mind having the mini band around right. your knees, trying to keep that like engagement of the glu- of the glutes. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty tough for me. Yeah. So um, cool. All right. So now um, we we talked about like rotation movements in season and off season. What are other some What are some other key differences now? that you are doing between in-season training and off-season training? Like, so how many days a week off-season are they hitting the weight room? How many days in-season are they hitting? And what is like the philosophy of each um, that you have when you're training with the team? Right, I would say like the program I put together um, for the off-season is, and obviously everything for them is completely optional in the off-season. We can't have anything mandatory. So I put together a program in place and they have options of, of sessions they can go to in the weight room, but I can't make sure they're doing it. And I would say the, cause we go typically from, I'd say October to end of January or February is, is the off season from the fall season to the spring season. So they have about four months in there. So I tried to break it up. Maybe the first part of it, we're going, I program four to five sessions. Um, maybe the first phase and then we go on the second phase and, and it starts to drop down uh, anywhere from two to three sessions right before season. So um, obviously the volume, we're doing more volume early in the preseason than, than later. And we try, we get a little bit more specific um, late in the off season. Um, so I would say, yeah, that 
we go, we kind of gradually go down and then in season, we're probably hitting the weight room twice a week. Um, and we're doing, we're doing some on court speed, um, and agility stuff. We'll do that at the beginning of practice. So that I get them when they're fresh. Um, and then occasionally we'll do some like capacity, some endurance work at the end, but we don't, um, like late in the season, we're not doing a ton of that because they're right. playing so much. And, and if you play hard in a two hour practice, I mean, you're, you're building the capacity that you need to play. So, yeah, I would say we do a little bit more endurance maybe in the off season, and then the season we're not doing a lot of it, and we're maybe hitting the weight room twice a week in season. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense um, just in terms of, you know, like you're playing your sport, and by playing the sport, you're building up capacity within that sport. Right. So there's no need to, to tackle sport-specific training because – the sports doing the sports specific training exactly for that's you. what they're doing yeah um so um all right so now college you're dealing with all four years so you have mm-hmm. um freshmen through seniors what's the like so how do you see the transition from high school from like the, your freshman like so high school athletes coming into your program mm-hmm. um what is the like what are the commonalities in terms of what you're seeing for them um, as athletes as they make that transition from like high school to college? Um, so, and I guess like, what's the commonalities? And I, I, I don't want to just say, you know, like, but like, wh- what are the weak, what are the common weaknesses, okay. you know, that, that you see as an athlete transitions from high school to college athletics and, and tennis? I, yeah, I would say, um, especially like, the biggest thing is we have, we have so many, and it seems like almost, I would, I feel like at least 80 to 90% of the kids coming in from high school have little, little, um, weight room experience, very, very novice in the weight room. Um, some of them maybe have had some private coaches and they've done maybe some on court stuff, or they've done a few of them, maybe have worked with a trainer. Um, but, the majority of the players we get coming in, um, especially at our level, have spent very little time in the weight room. So a lot of it is they don't even have great like relative strength just just for their general their general size. Um, so the the biggest thing is coming in and getting them to manage their body, um, manage their body weight, and then then we can start getting to start adding a little bit to it. Some of them we need to put on a little bit of weight. Some of them we just need to get their their general strength up so they can they can maintain throughout the, the season. And then I would say, so that's one of the biggest things I see is, a, is just a lack of, a lack of strength. Um, and then the durability aspect, like they, they don't quite have the capacity to maintain like a, a whole season when they come in, like high school is a little bit different where it's not, I mean, I'd say there are some players that it's going to be physical at high school, but the difference is that an 18 year old comes in, he's playing against 22 year old guys, which 18 to 22 is a huge difference. You're playing guys that are, that are you now physically mature that have spent four years in the weight room or, or, or doing stuff off court. And so it's physically, you see a huge difference with, especially the men, I, I feel like then more so with the women, you, an 18 year old um, guy versus a 22 year old guy is this a huge difference if they don't have a lot of experience and then the college game just gets more physical whereas the points tend to be a little bit longer guys are hitting bigger guys are getting more balls back so like we may get a guy coming in who in high school he hits a big serve and he's not seeing too many come back but in college 
they're coming back. So he's got to, he's got to deal with that. He's got to work on having a better first step out of his serve. He's got to work on um, being able to, to handle what's coming back. And so I think, yeah, physical, uh, the, just the physicality of it is, is probably the biggest thing. And so I think if they can come in with a, a better base and a better capacity, then it makes it a lot easier to transition. But most of the guys we're getting um, just don't have a lot of weight room experience. And I think that's kind of the way tennis just the nature of tennis it's not like a, a big weight room sport like i played i played basketball and we were always in the weight room we were in the weight room in the mornings and then we'd practice in the evenings or whatever so we would it was it was kind of like common for us whereas tennis i played high school tennis and college tennis and we didn't like we never went to the weight room in high school right. for tennis. and then in college even in college like we did our coach didn't know anything about it so we did very little um, I mean, he'd, he'd open up the weight room twice a week and we just kind of have free reign. Um, so it really wasn't organized. It's just kind of the nature of the sport. So I think kids come in and they're not really used to that mentality. Well, like, I don't, why am, why am I doing this? I don't need to, right. I don't need to lift. I mean, I, I can hit the ball. I can serve fine. I can move. I don't need to get big and, and bulky. Um, but I think it's getting them to understand that it's not necessarily about adding size or, or, or bulking up. It's more of, you know, being able to stay stable in the positions that you're getting because tennis puts you in so many different right. different positions, unilateral positions, off balance positions. And so you have to be able to control your body weight, um, your mass and your momentum, and you have to be able to, to, you know, get out of those positions quickly. And if you don't have the, you know, stability, the strength, um, just even the rotational and anti-rotational aspects of it, then it's going to be very tough to, to to transition from the high school to the college game. So I would say, yeah, the physical aspect and just the lack of lack of strength and lack of stability is is a huge is the biggest thing I see. Cool. Um, yeah. So I was I was I was curious, like if that was a if you thought that was uh, something more tennis specific than other sports, and you, you answered yeah. that. So that's what it um, seems. I think just the mentality of tennis players is is different than some of. The, you're, I mean, it's way different than a football player. Obviously, right? right. I mean, they right, grow right, up right. in the weight room, so it's like second nature to them. Where it's tennis is just not not common. Right, and that well, that durability aspect also comes from it being from the increased strength. So exactly, you, know, you increase strength, you give them more power, and then they right. also make them more durable too. Um, withstand some of those matches um so all right so if what are your like uh, you know i love like hacks and like just like the quick go to go to's you know so like if you had to nail it down where like if you were only given five exercises at most that you could do with your athletes right to make them better on the court and these could be weight activities these could be speed drills these could be whatever right so if you had a, if you were only limited to five um, exercises, whatever they may be, what would those five exercises be to help you make somebody more dominant on the tennis court? Okay, so I would say um, strength-wise, probably my number one would be some type of uh, rear foot elevated split squat. Um, I I love that exercise, and I think it's one of the. It's kind of I mean, we do it a lot um, throughout the year. And I think there's a lot of variations of it. You can hit some different spots just by foot placement. Mm -hmm. You can make it reactive if you kind of strike the ground and then explode up. So yeah, I, I think that would probably be my number one um, strength exercise for tennis players. Um, and then obviously the payoff or variations of it, whether mm -hmm. it's a press, whether it's a hold or or some type of rota table rotation, I think, um, I think that would be in there. Um, 
I would probably, I would probably keep some type of med ball throw as well. Okay. Whether it's, I guess, whether it's a slam, um, a rotational throw, um, or, or a press throw, something, something to that nature. So, um, and then you got two more, <laughs> two more, I would say probably, I love to do, um, ball toss reactionary drills. Okay. So, um, it could be just a, just a one, or it could be like a change of, like where I just drop it, they go to it, or it could be a change of direction where maybe I say go and they have to backpedal. And then when I release the ball, they have to respond to it, take off and get it before it bounces twice. So I'd say some type of ball toss reaction. Um, and then gosh, number five is, is tough. I'm trying to think of what one would be. Um, I would say maybe I would go with, um, Shoot, I, 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 maybe I'd go with some type of press, I guess. Um, just, I think, uh, I think that would be, um, I think there's so many variations of that. And I, obviously we wouldn't want to neglect upper body. So I'd maybe go some press, some press variation, whether it's cable, whether it's um, dumbbell. Um, but yeah, I would say if you could do, um, if you could do those five things, I mean, if you only had five options, I guess those would be pretty good options, I think for tennis, you're getting some upper body, you're getting some lower body, you're getting some speed, reaction, agility, um, some some power with a med ball. Um, so yeah, that would probably probably be what I would go with. All right, those are all very good options. <laughs> you know, there's so many, it's such a difficult question. Yeah. It's almost like a loaded question. Um, yeah. I hate to throw that at you. Um, one other <laughs> question I had, just because of the difference between the men and the women's game, is that um, there's been a lot more injuries um, overall between men and men's and women's, um, mm -hmm. and so like women uh, typically have more knee injuries than the men. Um, are you seeing that as well, or how do you do? How do you work with the woman, um, knowing to help make knee injuries preventable for them, or lower their risk of, of of getting a knee injury throughout the course of like their tennis career at the point? Right. I think um, a lot of it is. We do like, especially early on, um, especially when they're first coming in as freshmen, we do a lot of like, we'll do a lot of single leg body weight stuff. So we're, we're, we're working on managing um, and building more relative strength. Um, and then maybe we'll increase that. We'll add some maybe weight vest or we'll add some, some weights to it. So I think a lot of it is doing that. And then I, we have seen more so that, that with our women than our men. And we don't see a ton of injuries, honestly. Um, but we had our number one girl, I think three years ago, just kind of a freak accident. She just slid for a ball um, on spring break and tore ACL. Um, so that was like in the middle of the season. And she, somehow she was able to come back without surgery at the end of the year and, and play doubles with a torn ACL in the conference tournament. So yeah, I don't know how she did that. Um, but yeah, so that's, we, we've never had anything serious like that with the men. So I think, obviously I think it's the way the women's hips are structured. It, it, it puts them at a more risk mm -hmm. for, um, for that. So, yeah, I think the more we can build like hip stability, core stability, and, and just make sure we can control like, um, body weight and, and single leg positions, I think is, is really helped us in that area. Whereas we've had the one ACL, but we have, we don't typically have a ton of, a ton of knee injuries with our women. With That's our good. Women players. That's good. Um, all right. So, so I don't want to keep, but... yeah, no, not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't want to keep you too long. So we'll, we'll hit the, uh, 
my final questions that I ask every guest. Um, yeah. Everything you've said so far has been super informative. Um, I've learned a lot um, just from listening to you, uh, just about the, the college game um, and the different seasons and how you structure your programs. But so um, I'm a big fan of quotes. Um, you know, like I, I'm always like, I got these email lists that come in and it's mainly just like quotes and I'm like, Oh, that's a cool quote. That's a cool quote. So I ask every guest if they have a favorite quote that you sometimes always refer back to or, or that you use to like motivate your athletes or, you know, or it's just some like a uh, personal mantra or something mm -hmm. whatnot. So do you have a favorite quote? Um, that... yeah, I would say it's not like a, it's not like a widely known and I don't know if he made it up or if he got it from somebody, but I had a trainer when I was in, when I was in college. So when I'd come home, um, he'd spent some time in the NFL. He played, he played, uh, he was running back at IU. Um, and then he was in the NFL for a few years. Um, and so he trained me and my buddy and he was like, um, just all about mental toughness, all about mm -hmm. like everything was, everything was really hard. It didn't, we never had an easy day. Everything was really hard. So like mentally, I mean, that was the best thing I ever did. Like for me, for mental tough, toughness aspect, I felt like I could do anything when I was, you know, right. getting, getting through, if I could get through this workout with him, then I could do anything. So that was mm -hmm. kind of the mentality. And, and he always would say, um, if we're struggling on something, he'd always say athletes always find a way. So that's what he would, he would just throw that out there every time. So he'd be like, athletes always find a way. So we're, we're doing maybe a 60 minute bike ride and he's just killing us on intervals or something. And he would just throw that at us if we feel like we're like struggling or, or gonna, mm -hmm. we're going to quit. So it was, yeah. I think that was just something that and I, I just will never forget that. I always felt like it, it helped. Um, right. When you do that, just give you a little sense of motivation. And Right. That's cool. I like that one. I like that. Athletes always find a way. Um, if you, my next question I always ask is once again, I'm, I'm not only a quote person, but I'm a book person. Um, I have a stack of books that are on my to read list. Yeah. Um, so, um, and as I do these podcasts, I get more and more, uh, so it's a good <laughs> thing and a bad thing, but, um, if you had to recommend one book, um, and the book could be about training, it could be about tennis, it could be about life, it could be about motivation, but if there is like one book, which you had to recommend and you said that, like, you know, like everybody coming in or um, to your program should read this book. Yeah. Um, what book would that be? I think that would probably be the inner game of tennis. Okay um it's uh it's it's like unbelievable for the mental the mental aspect because obviously ten, tennis is such a mental game you're out there by yourself and you're you're fighting against an opponent you're fighting against yourself um you're fighting against fatigue and so yeah i think um and it's it's about like the main main focus is um shutting off the analytical side of your brain and just letting the other side take over that, that you've hit thousands of thousands of balls, you know, how to swing, you know, how to, you know, how to hit this certain shot. So if you think about what you're doing mechanically on the court, you're going to struggle. But if you shut that off and you just react and respond and do the things that you physically know how to do, um, then you'll be a lot more successful. So it's really, I mean, it goes into way more depth than, than I'm, I'm giving it credit for, but yeah, it's a lot of, it's just about like the, the mental side of things and shutting off that analytical side and then, um, being able to just kind of be an athlete and, and let your, your body take over. Is it cross-disciplinary? I know it focuses on tennis, but like a lot of the and principles I'm, can it be applied to other sports? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It could, I think, um, like I know a, a really good basketball trainer that was promoting it to some of his guys, some of his basketball guys. So I think, yeah, for like the mental side of things, it's, it's amazing. I don't even think 
um, the writer was a tennis guy or a tennis player. Um, oh, really? I, I'm pretty sure that he didn't even play tennis. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's really for tennis guys. It's like, well, known. like, it's one of those books right. that a lot of guys are like, you got, if you're struggling mentally, you've got to read the inner game of tennis. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really good. I thought you were going to say the Agassi in, uh, autobiography. I, I've got a signed <laughs> copy back there though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's I, uh, a good one. he's my favorite funny. player ever. So was he? Yeah. So who's yeah. mine growing up? Um, yeah. I'm a little older than you, but um, but I had I, I when he first came on the scene. That's that's when I was like involved in the, you know playing tennis and like oh, I yeah. watched the rise. So it was funny reading that book, hearing about like because like you envision like all these guys on the court and like they play each other, but like they're all friends and chums. Right. And no, you know, because like you got that <laughs> innocent, naive, right. like you know, like view you view of the world and then like right. just to hear the stories i was like oh wow <laughs> it was, exactly. was eye-opening it was, it was a good it was a solid read um all right so um my favorite question and this is just a you know like um a question i have is that you know what are your three keys to success so whether it's like personal keys to success or the keys to, you know, usually personal keys to success or your keys to success for like, you're going to relate right. to your athletes, but like, what are your three keys to success? I mean, I think what I would tell any of my guys or, or even myself, I think it starts with, you have to have the work ethics. You have to be willing to put in the work and put in the time. If you, if you really want something or you really want to improve something, you have to, you have to mm -hmm. do, devote your time to it and, and, be disciplined and and I would say my second one is character I mean you you it show I mean it shows tennis is one of those sports too if you you see like guys are calling their own lines out there at right. our level so it's not the pros where we have every every match chaired um, you're calling your own lines and so it's really evident you know out there and so I think it carries to life and so I think if you if you show poor character on court, you know, it's going to carry over. And so I think a lot of it is, is teaching them, you know, you have to have the work ethic, you have to have high character because it's not, it's not always about winning and losing. I mean, everyone wants to win, but I mean, it's more important to do things the right way. Um, and then I would say probably my last one is discipline. So I think if you have a strong work, work ethic, you hit your high character guy and you are disciplined in the way you perform perform jobs, perform, you know, um, whatever it is in your sport or just in your, in life and training. I think, yeah, I think those three things, I think you can be successful in pretty much anything you do or anything you choose to do. Cool. I like all three of those. Um, that's, uh, so what happens? So since you guys, that brings up another question about the yeah. game and the college level, like player calls a shot, Oh, that obviously was in like, right. is there any recourse or is it just like suck it up? And so if we're playing like a, another division three team, that's usually regionally ranked or in our conference, we typically get two officials. So we have two officials that'll rove the six courts or the three doubles courts. So you're playing three doubles first and then the six singles. So there's two officials for six courts. So they're kind of roving. So maybe the officials on your court, when it happens, if he's on your court and, and, and sees it, you can appeal to the official and you guy, Hey, was that ball in? And then he can overrule or he can say, no, the call stands. Um, but you have to verbally appeal to them. Okay. But if he's not on your court, I mean, you're just going to be like, come on, man, I saw that in. Are you sure? Um, that's about all you can do. I mean, you can't really, there's nothing like I can't overturn a call an opponent made. It has to be an official out there on a the court that sees it. Um, but when you get to like the nationals, they're chairing a lot of courts. Um, 
And then it obviously depends on like the budget. Like we don't have a budget to, to get six officials per match right. where if you're like playing in the big 10, like IU has every match chaired or Illinois has every match chaired. Um, so it's a little bit different there, but yeah. So we typically have officials that will rove the courts. That, that goes back to you now a mental toughness thing, because how do you train? Like, so a player makes a bad call, right. And your player has right. got it in his head and he's pissed off about that. Do you guys do any psychological training, like how to like, just like, all right, it's, it's done. It's over. Move on to the next one. Right. That's, I mean, that's like what you just said right there is the biggest thing. Like we have to get through to them. It's because especially the younger ones that have, that have a harder time dealing with that or haven't experienced some of that as much. It's like, okay, be, I know you lost that point, but are you going to let it affect you and lose the next so many points because you're still dwelling on that? Or are you going to let it go? And then, you know, just refocus and, and take care of business the next few points. So it's that's one of the hardest things. And I had the hardest time as a player with that. Like I had a hard time not dwelling on what's happened. Mm -hmm. Like I would get so frustrated and I, you know, and then it would it would cost me a few points or a few games because I was still, you know, upset about it. And so it's that's I think the number one thing in tennis is you have to have a short, short memory. You have to be able to get over things and. And it's just, it's one of those sports that it's like, you don't have, I mean, you may get mad at a ref in basketball, but at least he's there watching everything, making the calls. Like you, your opponent's making the calls, you're making the calls. So, I mean, there's no one there. So you just have to like, it's tough. Sometimes you just, you get in a bad situation and there's nothing you can do about it and you just have to let it go. And so, I mean, that's the hardest thing I think for, for tennis players to deal with is just getting over some of that stuff and not letting it affect the rest of the, the rest of the match. So some, we've had some guys over the years that like, I almost like hope a guy gives them a bad call because then it like lights a fire and they get focused and then they just play lights out. Like we had a guy that happened to him in a tiebreaker. And I think he won like the next seven points. Cause he was just like zoned in after the guy did that. And so um, some guys, yeah, it can positively affect them, but the majority it's, it's very, it's very tough. You just have to, find a way to deal with it yeah right it's like well that same mentality if they make if they make a couple bad shots in a row just to like yeah move on to the next exactly. one and, and like you can't control what's happened you got to focus on the things you can control and exactly letting yeah so it's it's interesting because like you know there's a big psychological aspect to the sport which oh, yeah. i think goes under appreciated mm -hmm. and that's you know and i'm sure that book goes into all that yeah so it's not, I mean, it's not like we can sub them out like, Hey, right. take five minutes on the bench, sit with me on the bench for five minutes and then cool down. And then we'll get you back in. It's like, you're stuck. If you, and if you let something like that affect you, like one, if you let one game go, because sometimes that can be the match, like it, maybe you get broken the next game and then you can't, you can't find a way to break back and that, and that's it. So it's like, yeah, you got like, it's, it's, it's really tough. You gotta, you gotta deal with it. Right. All right. So I, we're running short on time. I know you're busy. Um, so um, if you could step into my shoes and ask one question that I didn't ask, um, what would that question be? I would say um, maybe um, how, how much, uh, how much time do you put into, into like speed agility training in season? Maybe that would be, um, that would be the one one question I guess I, I would think of. So solid, solid question. Um, and what would be the answer to that? How much time do you put into speed and agility training in season? So obviously um, we do some, but the the intensity or the the volume is is low. So like we do we do a lot of it in our warm up. 
So like mm -hmm. on, I think two days a week, um, we'll do like an actual, I do actually Lee Taft's uh, CTSS sprint program. So we, we progress for 12 weeks. Um, so I do that, I do that twice a week. Um, and then I'll do one other day where we do um, some type of reactionary agility in like just either during the warm up or right after the warm up. But we just get enough just to just to hit it a little bit. So we maintain and then because obviously in tennis, you're constantly doing agility when you're playing, you're reacting to the ball, mm -hmm. you're changing direction. So, yeah, it happens a lot. So we don't do uh, and it's very, very short um, duration. So we do pretty quick stuff and then, and then it's over just to maintain some um, some first step and some explosiveness. Cool. Um, what's, uh, what's your plans for the summer? What do you, how do you keep yourself busy in the summer? So I'm starting next week. I start my summer tennis program and then my uh, tennis speed clinic as well. So I've got um, Tuesday, Thursday, um, the tennis program I do with a lot of the kids in the community, middle school and high school. Um, and then I've got a tennis speed clinic I'm doing on Wednesdays. Um, same thing, middle school and high school, high school players. So I'll do that throughout the summer. And then I do, I do private lessons and I run a big, um, a big Midwest elevated tournament for the USTA at our, at our facility, uh, end of July. So that's like a three-day tournament. I get kids from all over um, huh. the Midwest to come. Good, good recruiting tool. Yeah, exactly. It's a great way to, <laughs> I mean, it's a great way to get them on campus. Yeah. I love hosting those. You have to put in bids to the USTA to get selected to host. So I'm always putting in bids every year and I usually get maybe two to three of them. So it's, it's an awesome way to get kids on campus. Like you said, we've, we've got, I think two, two of our current players have played in those tournaments and that's how they were introduced to the, to the school. So yeah, it's an awesome recruiting tool. Cool. Um, all right, Andrew, um, how can people get hold of you if they want or follow you or whatnot and your, your tennis experts? Yeah. yeah. So they can, uh, you can always uh, follow my Instagram, which is at AG underscore tennis underscore performance. Um, and then uh, my email, I think my email is on there as well. Um, it's uh, Andrew Gregory at agtennisperformance.com. Um, so feel free if you want to contact me. And I also have a website with some, some programs, um, agtennisperformance.com as well. So cool. you can find all of that. I think links to all of that on my, uh, my Instagram as yeah, well. Yeah. And I'll put it in the show notes too. So, sure. um, yeah. all right, dude, this is awesome. I uh, learned a lot, very informative. Um, it's one of those, you know, um, I think it's the, the tennis realm or is, you know, underlooked in the sports performance, you know, world. And it's, it, it shouldn't be just because sure. um, it's, it's extremely necessary. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and then for listeners until next week, um, train <laughs> until next week, uh, train hard, but recover harder. Thanks for listening to the Norris Sports Performance Podcast. Be sure to hit the like and subscribe button, as well as checking out the show notes for more information on our guests. You can find us on Instagram at Norris Sports Performance. Until next time, I'm your host, Judah Boulay, reminding you to train smart and recover smarter.